I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Scott Blumenthal. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Scott, you're a geochemist and a paleoecologist. Uh, what's a paleoecologist? Uh, a paleoecologist, uh, at least to me, <laughs> is uh, someone who's interested in uh, studying ecosystems, so uh, different kinds of organisms that live in in an ecosystem, uh, the plants and other um, aspects to an ecosystem, and 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 the paleo part of it is thinking about ecosystems in the past. So I'm, I'm really interested in thinking about how um, plant communities and animal communities uh, interacted with each other uh, and how those interactions influenced their evolution uh, over time. So that's where the, the past comes into play. And I'm, I'm especially interested in uh, humans and human ancestors as components um, to, to those ecosystems in the past. So what time period are we talking about? Well, when we're thinking about humans, we're probably thinking about some time in the last six or seven million years, which is the time period where our own specific ancestors were uh, were evolving. Uh, of course, humans are primates, humans are mammals, so you can go further back in time and think in a more broad sense about human origins. Uh, and some of what I do does that, but but I m- most of my work is focused really on that that seven million year interval where we can think about our our uh, more recent specific ancestry after our lineage split from uh, the lineage that resulted in living chimpanzees. So that's really the specific area that I focus on. Uh, and, and it's important to note that most of that evolutionary history uh, happens in Africa. So from about seven to about two million years, if you're interested in anything related to human origins or human ancestors, it's got to be on the African continent that you're you're looking. So, to kind of think about it in in a more specific sense, then we're my own work is really focused on uh, ancient African environments, those human ancestors that lived in those environments, and the other critters that they shared the landscape with. And we're also interested in climate and and um, you know other non-biological aspects of, of ecosystems. Um, but that's, 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 those are some, some of the main questions that I'm interested in. So I guess you're, you're um, looking a lot into like diet of early humans and things like that? Yeah, exactly. So diet's one of the main ways, not the only way, but one of the main ways that, you know, human ancestors and other mammals, other animals interact with their environment. Um, a lot of my work has been focused actually on, on that question. Um, but there's other issues that we're thinking about, um, how animals move around, locomotion, for example, and in our own lineage and in, in, in uh, human evolution, right? One of the very first changes that happened in uh, our evolutionary history is is a major change in locomotion. Um, so it's not really diet at first that is most important, but the way that we moved around. And, and humans are bipeds. We 
stand and walk and run uh, upright on two legs. And so actually it's that change in the very beginning um, when our lineage split from chimpanzees that, that we have to think about. So it's, it's, there's a lot of different uh, changes, evolutionary changes that we're interested in. But um, one of the main ways that we can study this in the fossil record is using stable isotope geochemistry. And that, that's one of the main areas of research that I've focused on. I still suspect that Little Red Riding Hood would have been your favorite uh, nursery nursery rhyme or tale. My great 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 grandmother, what big teeth you have! <laughs> yes, there's there's a there's a famous um, quote um, from uh, a French philosopher whose name is escaping me at the moment. It goes something like, "Show me your your teeth, and I'll show you who you are." And and in some respects, that that actually holds quite a bit of truth in terms of. Uh, thinking about the fossil record and and not only are teeth really great to help us learn about you know what creatures are eating because you know of course you're using your teeth to process the food um, but but teeth are really helpful to identify uh, who it is you're looking at actually teeth are really uh, really spectacular because they uh, they preserve well we have lots of them we have lots of fossil teeth of extinct animals and the, the, the different aspects of their shape and size can actually really uh, be very helpful in, in identifying, you know, what species we're looking at. So it's actually really great. And one, one little tiny hard package in each individual tooth, you have actually quite a lot of uh, evolutionary and, and ecological information. And so I, a lot of my, my work has actually been focused specifically on teeth for those reasons. That makes sense. I mean, even within us, uh, dental records are used to identify individuals. So, why not entire species? Absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it, of course, a species is more than uh, any individual part. But I, I think also it's it's a it's a it's a it's a practical concern as well, since we tend to have just loads and loads of teeth <laughs> that preserve in the fossil record. So often you're you're really doing what you're forced to do. And in this case, it's 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 often all we have. So. We take advantage of it. What stage of your career are you at? Are you early, mid, late? Um, that's a great question. I would I would say I'm either I'm either late, early, or early, mid. I don't know where the cutoff is. <laughs> um, I, I I I'm a I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oregon, but I'm also a, a research associate uh, here at the University of, of British Columbia, which is uh, why I'm speaking to you today. And I, I've had the the, the the privilege and pleasure of uh, spending this academic year here at UBC and, and uh, sh should be here as well next year, perhaps the year after. Um, so I, 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 I'm still relatively early, I, I would think, in my career. But, you know, w each time you interact with students, you start to realize I'm not so early at this point, I think. Leave it to a paleontologist to describe their career like paleont paleontological ages. <laughs> <laughs> early to late or, or, ar or archaeological ages yeah. as well yeah it's the upper paleolithic of my career uh what did you study in school with your various degrees uh i have always studied anthropology so actually all of my formal degrees are in anthropology i have an undergraduate degree in anthropology uh, and my phd is in anthropology as well um what i think is is and and, and i think it's important to note that you know, this is anthropology in my case in the U.S., which is um, depending on the university you're at, but it's typically very interdisciplinary. There's a lot of different things that you can do that can be considered anthropology, and that's actually what always drew me to it. You know, you can you can be a geochemist, or you can be um, 
an ecologist, you can be a biologist, you can be, um, you know, someone who studies uh, culture or art or, um, you know, all, all lots of different kinds of things, archaeology, of course. Uh, and, and so to me, it was actually, it's, the biggest draw was that it was really the gateway to lots of really interesting questions. And you can, you can answer those questions in a lot of different ways. And that, that to me has always been uh, really exciting and, and really what drove me to it. Most careers, um, I find, are a bit circuitous. Um, you mentioned that you had a very linear uh, focus in your studies, but have you faced any setbacks or turnabouts in your career? Um, you know, that, that, that's an interesting question because in some ways I would, I would say that my path has been linear, but in other ways, um, not so much. So actually, although, you know, I, I've, as I said, I've been, I've been studying and now working, you know, a, a, as an anthropologist, um, for the duration of my career, I, within that, there's been a lot of twists and turns along the way. Um, so for, for, for example, you know, when I started, uh, graduate school as a, as a young graduate student, I, I, you know, I was, I was as many young graduate students are, you're sort of handed a, a first project and your, your, your supervisor says, well, you know, welcome to graduate school. We need to start teaching you how to, how to do research. Here's, here's a project, uh, for you to do. And, and in that case, it was, it was actually a project focused on the bones of African antelopes, uh, specifically their their limb bones, uh, and, and a particular joint in in the limbs of 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 an antelope, and you know I I spent six to twelve months uh, meticulously taking measurements of the shapes of these bones on uh, looking at you know hundreds of photographs of different bones that had been studied from different museum collections. Um, and after doing that, I realized, I don't know that I'm that interested in this. <laughs> and I, that would kill a lot of interest. In <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, there's a lot to, to learn from studying the anatomy, the anatomy of bones. You know, I, I wouldn't of course suggest that that isn't an absolutely worthy area of, of scientific research. But, but for me, I, I, I realized that it wasn't the anatomy. It wasn't really the bones themselves that was what excited me. And I, I realized that actually I wanted to do something a bit different, something that got me closer to the the biology, to the life, you know, the, the lived experiences of organisms, either either, you know, living animals or or if we're thinking about human ancestors and the fossil record, you know, our ancestors or or the ancestors of other mammals, uh, what their lives were like, um, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. And they're there's only so much you can glean from studying the shape of of a, of a limb bone. Um, so, what that meant is I had to figure out well, what do I do? What else can I do that allows me to uh, study, you know, more uh, aspects of the behavior or the biology or, or the diet, as we were as we were discussing? Um, so that basically set me on a on a path that stemmed from a series of decisions okay i don't want to study the shapes of limb bones of antelopes so i discovered that there was this this very different uh set of methods that that uh, we call stable isotope analysis and it turns out that you can use aspects of the 
isotopic or, or more generally chemical composition of, of teeth or other body parts. Um, and you can, you can use these isotopic chemical analyses to, to sometimes answer really, really interesting and specific questions about the, the lives of, of, of organisms. So, okay, I'm a graduate student. It's my first or second year. I've really decided this is what's really exciting to me. I want to do that. But there was a problem. There was no lab in my department that that did that, um, and there was nobody. Um, you know, my my supervisor, uh, you know, was fantastic uh, in many ways as a mentor, but they didn't do stable isotope analysis. They had no ability to advise me, to train me, uh, or any of that. So I ended up having to sort of find my own path, which involved actually spending, in the end, multiple years. Um, in a, in a, you know, in a different department at a different university, you know, a thousand miles away, uh, at the University of Utah. Uh, and I was working in a, in a, in a laboratory there, uh, where they focus on stabilized analysis of, of, um, of fossils and, and other mammals. And so I was starting at a graduate program in New York city. I ended up living uh, in Salt Lake City, working at, at Utah, but I was never actually a student at the University of Utah. I was I was a a visitor who somehow never left and was somehow never kicked out. <laughs> and I, you know, it was one of these situations where I I I, I remember asking the, the the PI who became in the end a, a you know a great mentor to me. Um, at first, the question was, oh, c can I visit your lab, you know, for a week? Uh, maybe two weeks, you know, learn a little bit about what you are doing and, 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 you know, maybe do a, a small project, something, something small you can do in a few weeks. Um, so we, you know, he said, sure, you know, why not? Uh, so we did that and it, it went well. And, and I realized oh, I, I really like this. This is really interesting. I love this lab work. I love everything about it. I, I really want to spend more time doing this. Um, so I asked again, uh, well, so I, I stayed for the two weeks. I ended up going back to New York for a little while. But I asked again, can I can I come back? Maybe this time for a month, maybe six weeks. Um, so I did, and you know, went through a few of these visits until, in the end, I I essentially picked up and moved all of my belongings to Utah and <laughs> spent essentially the rest of my graduate school years there, working there. But but all the while being a student, still, you know. Uh, at the City University of New York, where my my PhD ended up still coming from, um, so that was you know that wasn't necessarily a, a a straight line experience I would say in terms of you know what you do in graduate school and and how you find out what you want to do and then finding a way how do I do that, um, but I think I think in the end it, it's it's interesting because a lot of people feel like you you don't have those kinds of possibilities or that the, that kind of flexibility and I, I so actually when I often speak to graduate students now now that I'm you know maybe not at the very beginning of my career um, I actually like to tell them that that story because you know students who are just getting started they're often going through the same sets of um, you know, questions they're asking themselves that I was asking myself when I was starting out in graduate school. And, and, you, and you often realize like, oh, I, I, I'm really excited about, you know, various aspects of, 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 you know, the field that I'm studying, but maybe I can't do everything here. How do I do that? You know, there, there's, there's lots of different ways of 
making that happen. So I, I my encouragement is always to to throw yourself into the the securitous route because I think I think that's often the the best way to um, to be a student to, uh, to 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 explore different aspects of of science. And I, I've 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 often had actually the the most fun and 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 the most positive experiences doing that. Um, so yeah, in the end, I, I had an anthropology PhD, but um, only after spending four years working in a geochemistry lab. So I, I feel like that's a was a very positive experience. There are so many points in our lives where it feels like you have to make all the decisions for the rest of your life right then and there and plan the next 70 years out. Um, but in reality, life happens and even the best laid plans get twisted and and changed absolutely and and um you know when when you're on this track to become uh at least a, you know an academic researcher of some kind which is anyway the track that i know um there's no one right way to do it and i think a lot of people uh you know they they haven't they have in their mind they've envisioned this sort of one you know correct path but but there's actually there's many different ways of ending up where you uh, either want to be, or maybe as you, as you kind of suggested, you may not even know really where you want to end up and you'll end up in a place that has, that, that does turn out to be a place you, you're happy being in, but it may not be the place you initially envisioned ending up in. And, uh, anyway, you know, for me that that's been really the, the fun of it. In your career, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Well, uh, there's different kinds of discoveries one can make. In, in the fossil business, the discoveries are often uh, specific specimens or individual fossils that one finds. And, and, and you know, in my business and in research that's related to human evolution, uh, certainly in, in, you know, in the news media and in the press and, and in academic journals as well, um, you know, the, the biggest discoveries, the discoveries that get the most attention, they tend to be... Uh, a discovery that's used to describe, say, a new species, for example, or or is maybe the the new oldest example of something. You know, we found the oldest Homo sapiens. We found the. It's always the, the oldest. <laughs> it's always the oldest. It's always the first. Some occasionally it's the last. You know, oh, we 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 found the last Neanderthal. You know, and and you know, it's interesting. It's interesting, but that's not really what drives me. Um, what. What I would say is is the most interesting thing that I've found so far in my career is 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 related to a really big question that people have been asking actually for at least a century now, really more really longer than that if you if you really look back, um, which relates to the question of is climate change a really important driver of human evolution. Does our human adaptations, you know, our our upright walking, our gigan absurdly gigantic brains, our you know dependence on technology, um, or, you know, expressed earliest in the archaeological record as stone tools, other things? Can we can we explain these really odd features that define us as humans as adaptations to to climate change? That that's that's sort of been a really big question that anthropologists and paleontologists and, and others have been asking for, for a long time. Um, and, and, you know, usually the answer is, is of course, of course, climate change drove those adaptations. And if you take an introductory class to human evolution, 
if you take my class <laughs> to to <laughs> introduction to human origins, I mean, basically we say, of course, climate was important. Um, here's why, and this is the kinds of climate changes that happen. But if you really, if you ask honestly any scientist who's studying these questions, um, how do you know that? What actually changed about the climate, and how did that? How did those changes in the climate actually relate to specific changes in the biology or behavior of our ancestors? If they were being honest with themselves, they would look at you and say, "Well, we don't, we don't really know." Um, so, but one of the specific links that have been made for a long time is this idea that humans evolved in Africa. We know that that's where the earliest fossils come from, and that they lived in the African savanna. Okay, we have pretty good evidence for that. Um, so then the last thing that they'll say is, well, they, they were adapted to the arid climates in these ancient African savannas. Then it's it's somehow adapting to uh, aridity, to the lack of, of water available on your on your landscape. That that was somehow really important in explaining these major changes in, in, in our biology. So again, you know, standing upright, walking upright, running upright, using tools, potentially having big brains, and so on. So what I and some of my colleagues had spent uh, quite a long time thinking about, uh, myself over the course of two, three, or four years, and for some of my colleagues, uh, certainly a decade or more, um, is we tried to figure out, well, how can we, how can we test that hypothesis? How can we demonstrate that there was some change in, um, you know, aridity and how much rainfall that our ancestors were experiencing on the ancient African savannas millions of years ago? And basically, we found that we could use uh, oxygen isotopes. We're back to the chemistry now. And we analyzed the teeth of uh, extinct antelopes and other, other large, large mammals. Um, and we can use these isotopic measurements to uh, try to quantify what the ancient climate was like. So, you know, when you're thinking about millions of years ago, there were no weather stations uh, from 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 two million years ago in in Eastern Africa. You know, we don't have uh, instrumental records. We don't have written records, of course, and we don't have a time machine either, which is still to this day a bummer to me. Um, so what we can do instead is use these these chemical isotopic measurements in these ancient fossilized teeth of of these extinct animals, and, and and again we can we can we can use those measurements to quantify past climate. So we did this, and much to our our well, much to the surprise of many of our colleagues, I would say, um, we found that there was actually no change over time. There was no evidence for. Um, increasing aridity over the last, say, four or five million years in our study area in, in Kenya, mostly in Eastern Africa, uh, which is an area where we have lots of fossil evidence for human ancestors. Um, and that was really interesting because a lot of people have assumed for many decades that our ancestors experienced um, increasingly arid, increasingly hot, arid um, water stressed conditions. And, and again, that could explain uh, why we're hairless, right? Why we sweat, which is our fantastic 
built-in biological cooling system that we all enjoy. Um, but again, it turned out that that we found no evidence um, for this this increasingly um, this increasing trend of increasingly arid, water-stressed conditions through time. And so that was a really interesting, um, really interesting finding, and, and and actually a finding that went against um, you know what you would find actually reading most textbooks for um, you know the intro human origins class that I teach. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to me that that's the most that's the most interesting thing to me is actually addressing the questions that you teach first year university students in in some introductory course. I mean that th those are the the big questions always. I'm always tr trying, hoping, aiming at addressing those questions because those are the ones that 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 really matter. Um, you know, a lot of us, and especially you know when you're a graduate student, and then as you continue on, you you often you focus a lot on, on the little technical details, the minutia, and you sometimes spend years even really, uh, you know, digging into the really complex, uh, you know, details of, of, of something. But I've found that as I've actually moved along in my career, that what I really want to do is take a step back and, and think more about the really, the really big questions, the really simple assumptions that people have made um, and asking myself, well, how do we know that? Right? Can we can we actually demonstrate that this assumption that we've made for you know twenty, fifty, sometimes even a hundred years, um, can we demonstrate that that assumption is uh, might be true? Right? Can we support that assumption using evidence? And that that to me is is what's most exciting, and actually what really continues to drive me now as as a researcher. It's amazing the number of times we have to go back and challenge some of those basic assumptions and things that we've taken for granted. Um, for a long time, you find that in many fields. Absolutely, I mean, I, I I think that's really that's really one of the most important things because it's actually, you know, it, it's funny because you, you you often look towards these assumptions as your target. I always think that's the best way to find a project. You know, if if I'm talking to a graduate student uh, now and they're thinking, well, you know, how do I design my you know, dissertation research, or what? What should I be doing that is, um, you know, is going to be interesting? My answer is always, well, find find a really basic assumption that everyone assumes to be true, and actually push on that a little bit. Ask yourself, well, how do we how do we know that it's true? What if it's not true? Might that be interesting? Um, but it's funny because you also you have to make assumptions. You know, to do scientific research, you have to to some degree. Uh, be okay with the idea that I'm going to have to assume certain things are true in order for me to investigate something else. Because you can't also start from scratch every time. <laughs> you know, we just, we don't have the money and, and that would be a, a hugely inefficient way to conduct research. So it's, 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 and it's interesting when you, when you actually interact with your colleagues and you read their work and you reread your own work sometimes, um, it's interesting that you realize that different people have very different comfort levels in terms of what they're willing to accept as an assumption. Um, you know, and this, of course, this, you know, is true in, in life as it is in science. But I think in, in terms of thinking about scientific research, it's actually, it's a really important thing that people often don't talk so much about is sort of what, what, what do you assume and what is reasonable to assume and, 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 
I, I actually, again, I, I find that some of the most interesting science is happening really in those spaces, in those assumptions. It's a balancing act between restarting science every generation, uh, but also adopting flawed uh, ideas. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, everything that we do is, is incomplete. Otherwise, you know, why, why would we bother wasting our time studying something if it was already all sorted out? I, you know, that, that, that sounds terribly boring. One of the, my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about field stories. Um, I've never gone to the field myself, but I've heard that it's this magical place where uh, the best things go wrong and the worst things go right. Um, they're terribly entertaining for me because I don't have to live them. <laughs> Do you have any field stories that you'd care to share? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I I would agree completely with what you just said that it's 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 in the field where actually a lot of the a lot of the magic happens. And for those of us in in the in the you know, broadly, the the sort of earth sciences, the paleo sciences, anything related to fossils. You know, I think for a lot of us, um, it's it's actually in the field where, well, first that's where we're getting a lot of our real uh, our evidence. That's where we're getting a lot of the actual materials that we're, you know, going to spend time um, conducting research or studying, you know, in a lab. And and that's a really important part of what I do and and a lot of what my colleagues do. But it's you know without that ability to go out into the world, you know, into some environment where there's um, something worth studying. That to me is, is, is ultimately the most exciting thing. And, and it's, it's, it's exciting both because, you know, we're, we're trying to expand our horizons of knowledge and research, but it's also exciting just in a kind of more visceral sense, because you get to spend time outside of the laboratory and, 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 and away from, um, you know, a sort of academic, urban university setting. Um, and a lot of what I do um, has tended to involve spending time in terms of field work in actually some very remote, uh, very remote places, uh, places that couldn't take, you know, in some cases days uh, just to, just to get to if you're, if you're driving. Um, for example, I've spent a lot of time conducting field work in, in a, a fairly remote and quite extreme area in uh, northern Kenya called uh, the Turkana Basin. Um, Lake Turkana is one of the African Great Lakes, and it's, it's a really famous area because there's just uh, incredible uh, preservation of, uh, of fossils, uh, particularly fossils of early human ancestors, but also fossils of lots of other organisms, plants, um, various mammals. Um, and, and lots, hundreds of meters of, of fantastically exposed, uh, layers of ancient rock. Um, but you know, uh, you can now fly up to areas that get you not too far from where your field site is. But up until a few years ago, it was a lot more difficult to get there. And I remember, uh, the first time I went in 2006 as a, as a, as a, as a university student, we drove from Nairobi, the, the capital of Kenya, and I think we had to stop. Uh, we had overnight stops three different times before we actually made it to um, to, to, to Turkana. Um, and then once you're there, you're faced with an environment where it's uh, extraordinarily hot. I, I believe it's it's in the top one percent of hottest areas uh, on land on on the planet Earth. Um, it's extremely arid. Uh, so it hardly ever rains. 
and it's very difficult and 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 challenging to work there. It's challenging because, uh, you know, you have to drink a certain amount to avoid, um, you know, health problems. It's it's difficult to spend time in the sun. Uh, it's extremely remote. So if something does go wrong, something medical or what have you, you have to think very carefully about how do we do this in a way that is, um, is is feasible so we can get our work done, but also is is of course safe for everyone involved. So there's a lot of interesting logistical challenges. Um, but what I find actually most exciting, um, sort of once you've sorted all that out, is is when you actually get to spend time just just walking around, which is actually literally what we do. We spend time just walking around in these environments. Um, which are mostly, you can imagine, a, a, a kind of barren, mostly desert kind of landscape, um, which is great because if there's no uh, layer of grass obscuring all of those pebbles and rocks and dirt, well, that's great because then you can see the fossils sitting on on the surface. And actually, you know, I, I and other folks involved with paleontology and geology and, and, and archaeology in this region and, and, and others, um, you know, we go up for weeks at a time, and almost every day you just you just spend walking uh, and and looking for for fossils, collecting fossils, looking at the rock layers, collecting collecting rock samples, um, and and it's just incredible to spend time in these really beautiful places, um, knowing sometimes that you're the first person to find and to hold, um, some in some cases really incredibly preserved. Um, you know, pieces of our of our evolutionary history. I mean, I remember the first time I did this, uh, finding an ancient stone tool, an early um, an early old one, a two million year old bit of rock that had been manufactured by an an ancient human ancestor, and they would have used it in their life. You know, to do something to maybe uh, butcher an animal or 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 dig dig up a, a root that they wanted to eat or, you know, uh, something like that. And I picked it up and I thought to myself, well, I'm the first person potentially to hold this in 2 million years. And the last hand that held this stone tool was, you know, the hand of, of a Homo habilis or an early Homo erectus, some ancient human ancestor. And that's, that was a really incredible connection to make just in my own mind. And I, I, I was, I was, you know, at that moment, that first time I, this was, Back in 2006, as I said, I was I was an undergraduate. I was I was sold. You know, I, I wanted to keep doing that uh, for as long as I could. So for me, that that's really the most exciting thing about um, field experiences is really really having opportunities to 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 really viscerally um, connect with this evidence that we're looking for and being the one to to help find even just a little part of the record that we have and to work with the other folks that we're out there with is just really incredible. And how did you know it was two million years old, not from an early culture? We've been using stone tools until recently, right? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, there's a couple of pieces of information that you can use to determine uh, how old a stone tool might be if you're out there uh, and you find, find one. Um, the first thing you want to look at is, is you'd want to look at the actual piece itself. So you'd look at the the, the bit of stone, you'd notice um, particular kinds of of damage that is very characteristic of the way that um, we know our early ancestors modified the shape of stone to take something like a river cobble, 
uh, and transform it into into a tool, into something that might have had uh, sharp edges, right? That you could use to, you know, to to process different parts of of plants that you might want to eat or use for something else, or to butcher an animal that you might have uh, scavenged or or hunted. Um, so you can look at the tool itself, as I said. You can also look at where you found it. So you can look at the uh, the surface of the landscape that you happen to be, you know, walking through or standing on, and you say, "Well, I found this this rock right here." And what's really amazing about uh, some of these areas that we work in, in particular, much of of the area near Lake Turkana in northern Kenya, where I was I was thinking about, um, is is actually much of that geology. Um, has been mapped to some degree of detail, and we have a pretty good understanding of the distribution of different um, different rock layers of different ages across the landscape. Um, and so, you know, we can think about well, if we're if we're in this area versus another area, and you can look at a map or a GPS and 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 locate where you are. Um, you can have some expectation for. Um, how old the rocks are basically that you're that you're seeing and the last thing you can do of course is is do you know the proper geological research and you can you can uh use geochemical methods to determine quantitatively you know the age of different uh of different minerals that we find in in different sequences of 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 ancient rock um which of course helps us determine the age of of the fossils or the stone tools that we find in different layers of ancient rock. Um, of course, we have quite a bit of that research happening here at, at uh, University of British Columbia. So what what's really exciting about this actually, um, as I'm talking about this, is actually that that question, you know, how do we know how old the stone tool is, actually opens up, well, now we need to have a whole team of experts on other scientific approaches and methods. And we got to bring them out to the site and bring our samples back to their laboratories. Um, and that's what's really, really exciting about, I think, this this kind of research is it actually, it it's done in a way, at least it should be done in a way, and usually is, uh, where you get to involve a lot of different people who do a lot of different things. Um, and you get to collaborate with folks across, you know, disciplines or, or across uh, areas of research, even within within a discipline, sometimes even just to answer the some seemingly simple questions, right? Like, how old is this? Uh, and to me, that that's also one of the exciting things about field work is you get to, you get to spend time out in these places um, and you get to learn about all kinds of other exciting research that isn't necessarily what I do. It's not what I specialize in. Um, but, you know, we get to spend time with uh, a geochronologist or a uh, a fossil rodent expert, or um, you know, you know, an archaeologist, for instance, or 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 an expert on you know fossil aardvarks, perhaps, and it's and you know, you the list goes on. But but actually, that it, it, it's it's that that to me is one of the other exciting things is 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 being with a team of people who are all equally excited about it, but 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 coming at it actually from from different directions. I, I think that's really cool. You were talking about how difficult it is to get to some of these areas. Uh, of course, very recently, it was impossible uh, because international borders were closed. Uh, the pandemic affected all of us, um, but I assume it affected your field work, your research, and your studies. 
How did COVID affect you? Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question because of course we've all been affected um uh by COVID and 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 in terms of you know my own uh research there there was uh quite a few different impacts that COVID had. You know, of course, really in the very beginning we all remember uh back in March and April of 2020 um when everything sort of the world shifted on its axis and everything started to shut down. And of course, at that point, you know, my lab shut down. Uh, we had to shut down our our mass spectrometers, uh, which is never something you want to do if you can avoid it. And, and listening, I can still hear the sound of the the fans kind of slowly, s- slowly whizzing and whirring down. And then eventually the silence, the deafening silence in the lab. Um, but in terms of field work, uh, absolutely. You know, travel wasn't, uh, wasn't advisable and it wasn't possible. Um, and we had, we had funding. I mean, I, I so actually I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a, a part of a National Geographic uh, funded project that was meant to happen in the summer of 2020. Um, we were meant to go out to, uh, an area in Western Uganda actually, and, and, spend time doing uh, a lot of the same things I've been talking about, walking around, looking for fossils, uh, stone tools and, and whatnot. Um, and of course that wasn't possible. Um, and, and that, and, and it wasn't possible in 2020 and we also didn't go in, in 2021 either. So we're only now planning to go back in July of, of, of this year, 2022. Um, and and it's been a real it's been a real a real shame because there's there've been you know students who have now been spending significant uh, amounts of time in their own experience being an undergraduate or a graduate student um the last 2 years now where they haven't been able to go out and a lot of our colleagues and friends uh in the areas that I work in in eastern africa specifically in kenya and uganda mostly um you know, and they they haven't been able to continue their work, uh, and they've they've been uh, very excited, however, to know that we're we're coming we're coming back, and the projects are restarting this year. Um, so, you know, of all the effects of COVID, none of this is particularly, uh, you know, the worst of it, of course. Um, but we're very excited, hoping that we've perhaps turned, or at least sufficiently turned a corner that we'll be able to to get back to it, uh, later this year. And I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm so excited. I'm glad you're back on track. It's, it's been a long time coming. Aside from finding Bigfoot, uh, why should we? (laughs) (laughs) See, now that would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs) Finding Bigfoot is, is, uh, let's talk about that for a minute, because in some ways the search for Bigfoot is not you know, it's not that different from a lot of more serious paleontology and, 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 and geology that we do. Because you're, when you actually sort of think about the kinds of evidence that people, uh, that people say they've found, and there's folks that really, they're, they're very, uh, they're really sure that they've found evidence for Bigfoot. Um, and this evidence it tends to be very indirect. Right, and maybe they've found what they think is a, a footprint, um, or uh, you know, another kind of um, 
you know, damage or disturbance to, to the environment and these are broken tree branches or, or an area where they, they think maybe it had been moving through or, or, or nesting in. Does Bigfoot nest? I don't know. That That's an interesting question. Um, but but it, it it's interesting because of the reliance, I would say, on indirect evidence and actually the, the, the challenge of interpreting, um, you know, something like a, a footprint or, you know, other indications that maybe something was here, but what, what was that something? And, and, you know, if you have a predetermined answer in your head that, well, I know this something had to be Bigfoot because I know Bigfoot was there. I'm really stepping into this and there's a lot of people who might be unhappy with my, <laughs> my insistence, but, 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 you know, to me, the fun of it is, is, and we were talking about assumptions before, um, is if instead you assume that we don't actually know what, what might explain, you know, the, the, the footprint or what we think is a footprint that may not actually be a footprint, um, or whatever, you know, uh, uh, evidence that might be, might be presented. And I think that's, that's, that's sort of more interesting. It's equally hard to disprove something when the evidence is so vague as to prove it. Absolutely. And, and, but it's easy to see that evidence when it's so vague as confirming your, your, your theory, if you're, if you're already convinced that it must be true. But what I was going to ask, aside from finding Bigfoot in Africa, uh, why should we care where we come from and what our ancestors were like? Hmm. That's an excellent question. Um, well, there's a number of different, different reasons why, uh, you know, I, 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 th- I would say that I think it's important. Um, you know, one at a really fundamental level is that, um, you know, our, our origins, our ancestry, where did we come from? Right? This is a very old question. And there's many different ways of answering this question. And, and there's many different, um, you know, there's different ways of answering this question that have nothing to do with science and different answers to this question that may be very important for people in terms of their their identity, their 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 culture, their heritage. Um, but what I think the contribution that um, paleoanthropology and paleontology and archaeology can make is is I think at the at the most basic level the 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 notion that we're all connected and that because of our evolutionary history, which is in a sense a kind of genealogical history, we all share, when you go far back enough, common ancestors. Right? Really fundamentally what that means, in a very literal sense, is that we're all related to each other. And I think in, in you know, though that answer is never going to suddenly change change minds and and stop wars i think in in an increasingly uh unstable feeling world i think it's often helpful to be reminded of that fact and i you know and i i'm very mindful of that when i um you know i'm i'm and in the classroom and i'm teaching uh intro to human origins and i you know if i if if to me students take away just one thing from from that class right it would be that um we all have a common uh a common connection a common kind of um i don't want to use the word lowly maybe uh humble origin and 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 we can use science uh you know to know something to learn something about that origin i I just think that that's that's amazing, uh, but the other another answer of why we should care, I, I, you know, is, is actually because there's a lot of 
um, a lot of different things about being human that first we don't actually know how to explain some of these things, some of these really basic things about, um, you know, why do we all eat what we eat? Why do we, um, why do we feel the need to be social? Right? Why do we have a social network of a certain size? Why are we so dependent on devices? And I, I, I say that not just sort of <laughs> jokingly thinking about the iPhone in, in my pocket that I'm trying really hard during this interview not to to pull out and check, um, but in a more general sense, sort of what we're, we're really fundamentally tied actually to to technology and, and really specifically handheld technology. I mean, that's the first kind of technology that we know about in the archaeological record. And why is that so fundamental? And we still we still kind of live that. Um, and one might ask uh, very practical questions that might relate to someone's health, right? Why, why does my back hurt? Um, why is giving birth, um, you know, potentially difficult or dangerous? Um, <laughs> why, why do I have to, why, why does the dentist uh, appear unhappy when when <laughs> when when they're peering in, in into my mouth and looking at what's happened to my teeth, right? There's a lot of really really kind of practical basic things that might relate to 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 your health or to your life. But actually, a lot of these 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 characteristics, these attributes of of being human, they all relate really directly ultimately to our evolutionary history. Um, so if you care about you know. Uh, understanding any of that ultimately, um, you should care about understanding our evolution. Now, it's interesting because if you go to a if if you sit in 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 courses in a medical school, they're typically not talking about any of this, right? They're not talking about, you know, well, what's the evolutionary context of you know the evolution of of, of human bipedalism and upright posture, um, but they might be talking about you know indicators of of problems in the spine or or potential sources of back pain but but actually these things are linked why do we have an appendix or wisdom teeth exactly um and and although these sorts of evolutionary kind of ultimate uh origin stories are not often thought of as being relevant to any particular immediate concern um they're actually this understanding is really critical to ultimately uh, dealing with some of those problems. Now, there's also a lot of misconceptions, right? People might often say, well, I want to be healthy. I want to eat a certain diet. What diet should I eat? Uh, and and I'm sure many of us have, have heard of, of the paleo diet or, or different variants on on this idea that, that maybe, you know, there, there's a kind of quote-unquote caveman diet that must be be um, better for me because it's what you know my ancestors ate. Um, now that's an example of a situation where you might want to try to take something about our evolutionary origin and apply it to your everyday life. But that's where some of this begins to break down because, well, first of all, we don't actually have a good handle on what they were eating. Um, 10,000 years ago, or 40,000 years ago, or a million years ago, or 5 million years ago, which actually uh, highlights the first problem, is if you think about paleo diet, well, which one? Where, at what point in time of which group of particular 
human ancestors are we interested in? Because they were all eating lots of different things. So there wasn't just one paleo diet. There were lots and lots of, uh, you know, we see that there's huge diversity in the ways that our ancestors made a living and, and, and survived. Um, so then, you know, it becomes quite difficult actually to say, well, what should I specifically be eating? Should I be eating a lot of uh, a lot of nuts and berries, or a lot of meat, or not enough, or 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 very little grain. I mean, it it there's really no easy answer um, when you're actually thinking about about it from an evolutionary perspective. So so it's 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 yeah it's important, but it it's a source of information that can often be misused when thinking about how to apply it to to your everyday life. My ancestors ate pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my my descendants will certainly be able to uh, make that same claim. You make uh, paleoanthropology sound really exciting. Um, what's your favorite part about it? Uh, my favorite part about it, um, I would say honestly, is that we know so little. It it, it it's a field of of science that is actually quite young. Um, I mean, one can think about the history of. Uh, of other of other scientific pursuits, certainly of of, of geology or, or certainly something like chemistry or physics, um, and in the case of paleoanthropology, anyway, it, it, it's a very young uh, field of science that really only has been operating in the way that it ha- that it operates now. Um, you know, certainly, you know, mostly for the last fifty years or so, um, but within the last century over time this field has developed um and then really only the last few decades has it been uh really it, it evolved to a place where it's 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 a more mature field of science with established ways of doing things but but anyway for me the the most exciting thing is again just that there, there's so much to do there's so much we don't know um every every time i teach uh this topic Every time I, I, I teach, uh, you know, introductory introduction class uh, on human origins, I have to change what I teach. You know, every year I have to update some of the, in some cases, quite basic material. Um, not so much on how, you know, evolution happens and the basics of genetics and what's a fossil. Of course, that, you know, is, is relatively stable. But um, every year there's really exciting new fossils that are, that are being... Um, discovered and described and, and, and published, um, new geological research that is reconfiguring the way that we understand the evolution of a, of a, you know, of an important lake basin or of a climate system, um, or, uh, you know, a new sort of technical advance in the way that we can take, um, three-dimensional images of something and we can, we can reconstruct a fossil digitally in, in a really sophisticated way now, or different kinds of geochemical tools that maybe my colleagues and I are doing. And and just really, I mean, every it, it it's just it's so um, fast paced. It's so uh, so often that that there's new and exciting avenues of research. Well, at the same time, a lot of the old avenues and ways of doing research are also still really exciting. So it's this sort of increasing kind of inverse pyramid, if you will, of, of, of just like more and more to do. Um, and, and, and so that's what, that's, what's so exciting about it to me. It's like having the dark ages of the field with the Renaissance occurring at the same time. 
Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the first or the uh, founding uh, parents of modern paleoanthropology are they still alive? Um, well, there, there's, there's not just one person who you could, who, who you could uh, kind of identify as, as you know, maybe an individual parent of paleoanthropology, but certainly of of some of the early important figures. Um, no, I, I would not describe them as currently living, but um, but you know, uh, just as an example, um, the first uh, human ancestor, the first fossil of an of, of a recognized um, you know extinct creature that falls on the human lineage, right? That represents some kind of ancestor or cousin of ours. Um, that was found on the African continent, right? was only found about a hundred years ago. So that was, if you want to find a starting point for modern paleoanthropology, I would say the point at which people realized that it's in Africa that our origins lie. Um, now, before that, people had some idea that that might be the case, but there were no fossils. Um, in fact, Charles Darwin himself uh, famously predicted that uh, we would find evidence for human origins um, on the African continent, given the similarities that human beings share with uh, the living great apes, the chimpanzees and the gorillas, who, of course, are our uh, closest um, living relatives in, in a kind of evolutionary and genetic sense in terms of our relationship to other, you know, other primates, other mammals. Um, but Darwin predicted that, you know, without having any actual fossils from Africa. And it took, you know, it took another 50 years or so for someone to find one. Uh, Raymond Dart was, was his name. Um, and even at that point, it wasn't well accepted. Um, you know, people didn't like the idea, people in Europe, especially at that time, uh, didn't like the idea that our ancestry would would lie in Africa, and there was a lot of resistance to that idea. But but I would say by the 50s and 1960s, you know, this became more widely accepted through the work of the Leakeys, in particular Lewis and Mary Leakey, uh, and 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 you know now lots and lots of other researchers who have who have entered uh, since then, including I, I I really want to point out researchers who were not necessarily only from um you know western europe or north america uh, which which in the beginnings of paleoanthropology was absolutely the case and this is a field that really does come out of a uh, colonial and kind of early neo-colonial uh, context uh, and i think one of the most important changes happening and it's of course incomplete widely incomplete but one of the one of the big changes happening is that Paleoanthropology, in particular, African paleoanthropology, should be led by African scholars, and I think we're, you know, we're, we're seeing this uh, this gradual change uh, of more, um, you know, with each generation, there's there's another generation of students that are that are being trained and and who are leading um, many of these projects now um, that we're that you know that that we're involved with as well. Um, and I think that that that's really important. And, and and of course, it's this is you know this has been an ongoing uh, an ongoing issue. But um, it's 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 at least important to, to 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 know and to see that progress can be made, and that we can we can do paleoanthropology hopefully at least as an example in a better way, you know, in a less colonial way, in a less in a less racist way. I think that's actually 
uh, been something that many of my colleagues, especially over the last years, have been uh, becoming more cognizant about, which has been uh, a, a good thing. That message that you were saying before about how we all have common kin in our past, uh, while that's comforting today, I can see how uh, 100 years ago that may have frightened people um, because of the, the deep racism in many societies and why they would have resisted the idea that uh, we're all from the same source. Absolutely. That, that's a, it's, it's a challenging idea for people who want to see, um, see things differently. Um, but I think it's an important, I think it's, it's an important foundational idea to keep, to keep talking about, um, and to keep studying. And I, you know, I, 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 it's, it's also important, I think, you know, and I, you know, and I, I talk about this in, in, well, to anyone who wants to listen, but I think, you know, the, the other thing about anthropology is that its own history is also, even amongst the anthropologist is, is rife with many examples of people who are, who are using the research to support some of these, uh, you know, racist notions, notions of racial superiority, of racial definition, um, and all of that. Um, and that's been an important thing to, you know, as a discipline to come to terms with and, and to, to think about, but I think it's important to, 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 to talk about it, to acknowledge it, um, and, and to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, we, we, we continue to conduct science in a much more, uh, I think, self-aware way. Speaking of the ugliness of racism, um, I asked you what the best part of your work was. Uh, what's the hardest or the worst part of your work? I'm sure there's a good answer to that, but I, I don't have any because I, I, I really don't see any part of my work as, as so terrible. Um, there's certainly challenging aspects of my work. Um, you know, negotiating um, relationships between different Different stakeholders is challenging. Different different colleagues is challenging. Learning how to be a better colleague and a better mentor is challenging. Learning how to teach effectively is challenging. Um, you know, conducting research uh, in uh, you know in a world where um, uh, uh, support and funding for research is not always what we would all hope it to be is also challenging. Um, Doing the science itself is is challenging, but that that to me is the best challenge. That's the the good challenge. That's the challenge that keeps me coming, you know, to work every day, thinking about, um, you know, how do we how do we solve this new problem? How do we, you know, in my case, I might be thinking, well, how do how do we use, um, you know, isotope data? How do we measure these these ratios of of heavy to light? carbon and oxygen isotopes in teeth and other things how do we use this 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 these numbers that we get out of them you know off the computer screen after we run the analysis in the lab how do we convert those numbers into an answer to a question that's actually interesting and and that to me is the you know is ultimately the 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 the, the challenge that drives a lot of my work and and is something i'm really excited about uh, and, and you know both as a as a geochemist and as a as a paleoecologist, but it's, it's hard, you know, people often, people often, especially with, with, with this kind of work that I do, some of it, these isotope measurements that we're making, um, some of this is not new, you know, some of these are measurements that people have been making for, 
um, for decades now. Um, and, and, and being able to produce a number on a computer screen in some cases is not that interesting or not that, that innovative, but actually thinking about what we can do with that is I think the, one of the main challenges. Um, and I, I get really excited about that. So I try to see challenges as opportunities. Um, even, even failures as opportunities, you know, maybe, um, you work really hard on a, on a, on a, on a proposal, you know, to, to do a big project and you ask for a lot of money and, and, and they say, we don't think we want to fund you this time. Um, and you know, those sorts of academic or scientific failures often present opportunities to think, well, maybe we can be doing something else or maybe, um, you know, maybe there's a different way we can think about it. Uh, this actually reminds me of a, of, of, of a funny, uh, of something funny I only noticed recently, well, uh, well, a few years ago now, just before the pandemic, I was teaching a, a, a graduate student level seminar, um, and we were reading a, a foundational uh, a paper, an article that was written, I think, in in the in the nineteen seventies about a kind of fundamental idea in terms of how evolution works uh, and 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 whatnot. And it's it's a very well known idea, um, but I had never actually, before teaching this class, I'd never read the original publication where where they described you know for the first time th this idea. But what caught my attention was that at the very end of this paper, in the acknowledgments, was a sentence that said something like, and I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing, something like we we thank. Um, you know, the U.S. National Science Foundation for rejecting our funding proposals because it forced us to come up with something else to do <laughs> that didn't require a lot of money. And what they ended up doing instead was was thinking about, um, you know, evolution and ecology in a new way. And they ended up, you know, again, coming up with this uh, really foundational new idea that they, you know, that they then published in, in, in this paper in the seventies that, you know, if they had been successful and had, um, been awarded a, a large grant, they would have gone off and they would have done something else and they never would have had to, you know, have the opportunity to, to come up with that new idea. Of course, the Darwinists embrace failure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is the, uh, the greatest, uh, opportunity for invention. Or reinvention. I'm curious, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your studies or your career? Um, I, I don't. I would say that I'm, I'm very much a, uh, uh, you know, n not a member of a visible or, or typically recognized minority. I, I, my, my background is, is that I'm a, I'm a, a, a secular person who was raised Jewish, I guess I would say, which is certainly not uh, in academic circles, you know, the least represented group of people. Um, but I, I, I find that, you know, one of the most important things I can do as, um, you know, not being a member of one of those, uh, of one of the very many groups that have been underrepresented and, and frankly, in the case of, of, um, African scholars and, 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 you know, uh, which is relevant to me, uh, given my, my own research interests, people who have not only been underrepresented, but in fact, actively excluded from, uh, you know, research, uh, and, and academic training. Um, so, 
you know, I think one of the most important contributions someone like me can make is, um, and there's many ways, of course, of addressing, you know, the, these, these issues. But one, one of those ways I think is, is to, um, actually open up and provide those opportunities and, and provide training opportunities for, uh, for folks from, from countries that don't have, um, a lot of, um, resources or scientific infrastructure, or in some cases, graduate programs in the fields that, that we're, um, uh, that we're working in. Um, and I think, I think changing that representation is, is, is again, not, not the only way to address these problems, but I think is a really critical one of those ways. Uh, and it's something I, I, I think about. Um, yeah, it doesn't make sense that a person would have to come from Africa to the West to get a graduate degree in studying fossils found in Africa. No, they, they should be able to be trained there and, 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 and we should be sending people there uh, to do it. Now, of course, we go there and we work at field sites there and, and the museums there where some much of the material is, is currently housed, although, of course, there's older colonial era material that, that you know one might still find in uh, a museum in, in in the Americas or or in Europe, for instance, um, but I think the future is is certainly in my field is 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 increasingly focused on uh, activities there. But it's it's tough. It takes a lot of money to do um, scientific research, and it's tough to find the money. Um, you know, and we all we all struggle with that. And and you know, national funders of research in in Canada and the U.S. and in 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 Western Europe and and elsewhere. Um, uh, you know, they preferentially support often, you know, researchers who are coming from those places and, and it's tough, it's tough to, to, to build the infrastructure, the training infrastructure, the research infrastructure, um, you know, in, in some other areas, but it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's a long-term effort that I think is bearing fruit and will continue to do so, uh, you know, over, over the course of my career and, and hopefully, uh, subsequent careers of, of of my students and others, it is it is evolving as 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 many things do. If anyone's listening to this right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what advice or background or courses would you recommend they take? That's a great question. Um, you might be thinking, well, he's going to say go study anthropology because um, that's what that's what that's what I've been talking about in my as I said, all, all of my degrees were in anthropology. Um, but actually, <laughs> I would say that that yes, anthropology is important, and 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 that's the area where we focus uh, certainly on on the co- the component that relates to human human origins and 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 human um, evolution, our uh, uh, the fossil evidence that we have, and, and the archaeological record, of course. Um, but I actually think that some of the best uh, ways for students to approach this, especially if they're interested in getting into this profession, is to focus equally, at least, in uh, the earth sciences. And I, I've found that the best preparation um, to become a paleoanthropologist actually is training and preparation in in, in geology and in the other areas of of the earth sciences, um, because it teaches teaches a very different way of thinking. It teaches uh, a way of thinking about um, time, right, and earth systems, natural systems, uh, which I think is, is, is really critical when thinking about evolution, when thinking about fossils, when thinking about 
you know, what you're looking at when you are out in the field and you find a stone tool or a fossil and, and thinking about, well, what do I do next? Um, uh, I, in fact, I, I, this makes me think of a, of a, of a kind of, uh, a funny experience I had when I was a graduate student out in the field. Um, and we were walking around and, and, you know, I think there was, there was a geologist who was with us and he was pointing out like, well, look at those, look at those layers of rock. They're 3 million years old. Oh, look at that. Um, impressively thick layer of ancient volcanic ash. Look at that layer of ancient, uh, uh, ancient soil. Uh, there's, there's an ancient lake bed, you know, and you're thinking, wow, like you can, you can, you can almost begin to visualize how this landscape has changed really dramatically through time. And it's, it's through geology that we can do that. But what, what I was thinking about is we were walking, walking along and we find a couple of ancient looking, um, stone tools, uh, the same kinds of tools I was, I was thinking about before. Um, and this geologist, uh, his name was Frank Brown and he's, he's uh, unfortunately no longer with us, but he, um, at the time he, he looked at me and he said, oh, that, that's interesting what you found. Um, what, what, what do you think you should do next? And I, I looked at him and I said, well, if I was thinking like an archeologist, I might start digging and I might, you know, put a hole in the ground, a nice, a nice even meter square, perhaps take it down in five centimeter, centimeter increments as a proper archeologist would. Um, but thinking instead how a geologist might think about it, I said, well, I'd keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, correct. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, not because it's not interesting, but actually the way to understand anything that you found is is to continue um, studying the landscape and, and, and thinking about, well, if, if, if we're going to study the geology and if we're going to... I want to know something about where this stone tool came from. And as, as you correctly asked me earlier in our, in our chat, how do you know how old it is? Well, certainly you're not going to find the answer to that question unless you, um, you know, move around and, and keep walking and, and keep studying the geology. So I've, I found that it's, it's really the, the fusion of these things that, that is the best. So for, for students, you know, I would say study both, um, you know, archaeology, anthropology, and, and as much geology and earth science as you, as you can get. That, that, that's my advice. It's useful to have those two brains in your head, the one that wants to focus on, focus very closely on a small, tight spot of land, and the other one that wants to focus very broadly on a, an entire landscape. Yeah, that's it, exactly. It's, it's, I think, being able to hold different perspectives in your head at the same time, which is, which is really valuable. And I think I've, I've found that to be, uh, you know, the, one of the greater challenges of the kind of work that I do, but, but really ultimately what's most exciting about it is I can, I can, you know, spend time thinking about something in one way and then maybe the next day or the next hour, I might be thinking about it in a very different way. And I, I think, you know, to me, that's, um, that's what got me into this. You know, I can, I can spend some time thinking about the, the minutia of the microanatomical structures of a particular tooth and how that maybe relates to, um, you know, the biological development of that tooth. And then I can step back and think about, well, how does that help me study something about a climate system or a whole ecosystem? And how does that relate to evolution over millions of years? So there's lots of different, you know, perspectives and, 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 times where you're zooming in really far and then zooming out and being able to kind of do all of that, I think is, is really what drew me to, 
to this area. I'm going to get you to zoom out on your own life now. Uh, correct me if, if I get this wrong. So again, you are at the end of the beginning of your career. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we we can go with that. So um, project yourself to the end of your career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's a couple of different thoughts that come to my mind. I think I think one of the things that I would hope would uh that I could look back on would, would be to think that I've um I've I've made some some mark on the next generation of scientists and they've all and maybe I've had students who have gone on to do maybe better work than I have. And I think that would be really satisfying. And I think, you know, a lot of us come into academia because we, you know, we want to interact with students and, you know, that that of course is a is a major uh, component of what we do, and I, I think, I think looking back on that would be something that I would find, uh, I hope to find in the future, uh, you know, some satisfaction in. I, but I would also, I would also hope that, you know, maybe someone or some people somewhere who I'll probably never hear from again, who maybe sat in one class, you know, that they took decades ago when they were at university and it was an intro class in a field that they never thought about again and they only paid attention half the time and they probably didn't get an A. Uh, um, students not paying attention? Say it so. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe every now and then there'll be a few of those, uh, you know, people who, who maybe take something with them, some interest in, um, you know, in thinking about humans as a part of the natural world or, or an interest in... Um, on science broadly or our evolutionary history or, or our ultimately our, our link, you know, to the natural world, our, our dependence on it. I think especially now given the climate crisis we're all facing, I think is a, is a really important uh, message to take away from this idea that, you know, we're all products, not only of our evolutionary history, but, but of this connection with, um, you know, with the planet so at a really, really high level. Yeah, maybe some folks thinking about that down the road. That, that, that's not a bad contribution to make. I, I completely agree. <laughs> I'm going to get you to zoom out again. Um, looking at your field, uh, where do you see it going? I find that often when a person enters their f a field uh, these days, uh, the world is changing so quickly that by the time they retire, it's completely unrecognizable. So what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of the changes that are coming to your field? And um, what advice do you have for them to anticipate them? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, certainly over the course of a career, but you know, sometimes even over the course of just, uh, just a few years. I mean, um, I think it's not uncommon for someone to you know, design a, a project, or if you're a graduate student, maybe it's your, 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 your PhD dissertation research. Um, and by the time you've completed it and you've been maybe awarded, a, you know, your degree and then, and then maybe you've published some of it, by the time you publish it, um, in some cases, in, in many cases, the research is already out of date <laughs> because it, it takes so long, you know, in, in some cases, many years from when you um, initially conceive of, you know, of what you're going to do and design a project, find some money to do it. Um, 
get some materials that you need, maybe figure some stuff out in the lab, what kind of methods you're going to use. Uh, you know, you do the work, you end up getting some results. Um, and then you have to think about what does it mean? You have to interpret the results and you have to somehow, um, you know, come to come to some sort of conclusion and then ultimately you know you, you you've got to publish it that's the sort of product that, that you know we're hoping to produce at the end of a project um but you know that whole process um takes a long time uh, in some cases it can take years can take five years can take 10 years sometimes it takes 20 years so by the time you get to that end point um <laughs> inevitably things will have moved on um, and so this is this is something that we we all you know all of us uh, certainly face uh, at every stage of our career. But I, you know my my advice for anyone really, I think especially students really at the earlier stages, um, but really anyone is, you know to 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 not stop, <laughs> to keep to keep reading. You you've you've just got to keep up with what's going on. Um, I found it increasingly difficult to keep myself up to date in terms of what everyone else is doing. What are my colleagues doing? A lot of them are doing really exciting research. And sometimes it's really difficult uh, to find the time and the attention and, and just the, you know, the ability to, to read and hopefully absorb some of what they're all doing. Um, but that's so important. It's so important. And, and, and if you do that and keep yourself engaged, I think you can, you'll find that you can keep up with a lot of the all the different kinds of changes that are happening, the changes in the ways that research is done, the questions that you might want to ask, not only just technical methodological things, but but the ways that we even approach, um, you know, at a most basic level, the kind of research that we're doing. Um, so certainly for students, you know, for graduate students, for my own graduate students, um, you know, one of the most important things you can do is just just read voraciously in in the scientific literature because there's so much and it's impossible to read everything so you know you don't that's not going to be necessarily your goal because there's just so much but if you can if you can if you can dive in and absorb as much as you can and pay attention to those assumptions coming back to where we where we started um, you'll you'll find that you're you're keeping up just fine sounds like the blessing and the curse of a very young, immature field. Uh, you could be the one to discover the holy gra grail of paleoecology. But like you said, by the time you've done the, the good science and published it, uh, someone could have discovered something else, which completely f throws all your research uh, off course because you just didn't have enough uh, evident evidential framework. Um, to understand what you thought you understood. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's 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 a it's a continual it's a dance. You know, it's always back and forth uh through time and it's it's never complete and I you know and that and that's okay. You know, I I'm okay with 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 incompleteness and with with not knowing and with uncertainty. I I love living in that intellectual space anyway because I think that's where um some of the most exciting research is happening, but but I think I think I think finding comfort in that or being able to be comfortable in that I think is really important because it's it's you know there 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 never is an end there's never really a, a definitive proof for anything at least not in what we do I mean um, there's no end to science <laughs> no 
Um, and also what we do is, is so much more, um, it's so much harder than some of the hard sciences like physics and chemistry. Cause in, 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 in the really traditional, you know, natural sciences, you can design an experiment and, uh, tightly control a lot of the variables that you're not interested in and, and determine the effect of changing one thing on, on something else. And you can have a lot more confidence in the answers in some cases that you get from that kind of research. And, and, you know, when, when studying the fossil record, we don't have that, um, that ability. Now the experiment already happened. Uh, the, you know, the evolutionary history that we're trying to understand, um, happened, you know, the changes in the climate, the changes in the landscapes, the changes in the, um, the bodies or the lives of, of, you know, our own ancestors or, or the ancestors of other organisms. Um, that evolutionary experiment up till today already happened. So all we can do is, is try to, um, you know, tie together the different bits of indirect evidence that we have and reconstruct what happened. You know, it's, it's much more akin to, to sort of thinking about it like a, like a forensics case. You're, you're trying to solve a crime rather than conduct an experiment. Uh, and it's a different way of thinking, but I, I find that it's, uh, I actually think it's more fun because there's, there's so much less that we know. I'd watch CSI's Lake Turkana. <laughs> Wait, it'll come. I'll I'll be there. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you for sitting down with me today. Those are all my questions. Um, did you have anything to add before I let you go, or anything I missed? Um, no, you know this is this has been great. It's been my pleasure uh, to sit with you and, and chat. Um, you know, the only thing that I would I would leave with is just um, the the kind of Per perpetual sort of watch this space stay tuned because human evolution human origins research is never is never done and i guarantee you um you know next time you 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 read the paper or you watch a documentary or something there's going to be some exciting new new discovery some new species some new uh some new find um some new bigfoot some new bigfoot so we're all we're all looking forward to that thanks scott my pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.